0: One Hope Church. We're going to be in First Peter, Chapter Five, finishing up First Peter, and next week we'll move on into Second Peter. So, if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll look at the whole chapter of chapter 5, 1 Peter. So, starting at verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I will stop there and we'll read uh, the rest of it as we go. So Peter has has written this letter uh, as a word of encouragement, uh, which we see all throughout. We see the word exhort uh, all throughout this book. Um, And this this passage in particular, the, the section I just read, is one of the key passages that we have that provides evidence for the elder form of leadership in the church, in the New Testament church. Um, it, if you look at the other passages and, and in this context, we see very early on that the Christian churches had an elder form of leadership, not a clergy form of leadership, which may be more what we're familiar with, that, that there was a plurality, there was a group of men within each of these churches that led the church rather than having a sole person. And he had directly addresses uh, these churches that are in Northwestern Asia. If you go back to the beginning of this letter, you'll see the, the churches that are listed that are in Northwestern Asia. And so by saying, when he says the elders and he refers to all these churches, we can see that it is an established practice, not long, you know, just a few decades after the founding of the church, that elder leadership was common among the churches. Um, and you see also that he uses the word elder rather than the word overseer. If you look at other passages in the New Testament that refer to the leaders of the church, you'll see also the passage, you see the word overseers. And they're kind of used interchangeably. But he uses the word uh, elder here because he's talking to a predominantly Jewish audience that are in these churches that have been, a Jewish Christian audience that has been uh, dispersed among these churches. There were also Gentiles that were a part of that, but primarily he was speaking to uh, Jewish Christians And elder is a more common term for them because if you look at through the Old Testament, you see uh, the role of elders in the community, not so much in the religious leadership, but in the community leadership. So he's writing this letter to them, and he's framing it in a way that they can understand. And while he doesn't necessarily give a doctrine for the elder leadership of a church, by writing the letter in the way that he does, it gives evidence for that. And as I said, he, he, right at the beginning, he says, I exhort the elders. He exhorts you know, encouragement. He's in pointing them in the way that they should go. And he singles out the elders from the rest of the congregation for this particular part. You know that as we've been going through First Peter, he talks to different groups. He talks to wives and husbands, and he talks to different segments, and he talks to people who are working and things like that. So he's talking to this segment of the church now. And it's very similar to what Paul did in Acts chapter 20 when he's given his farewell address. He calls the elders from the church and speaks to them before he leaves. And he says, therefore, which always ties back to everything that he talked about before this. And so we remember last week he talked about the trials that, uh, that they would have to face, the sufferings, the persecutions. And it's the responsibility of the elders of a church to lead a church through those times of trials and suffering. Uh, so that they can do the right things to that, that they can follow God through it. And then he says that as a fellow elder, you know, remember Peter, the apostles really served as the elders of the early church in Jerusalem you know, shortly after Pentecost. So Peter had experience as being a local church leader. He knew what it was like to deal with the day-to-day problems that people go through. Uh, and so this was not something that he was above, you know, even though his role now was somewhat different He knew what it was like to be a leader in a local church. So he understands that heavy responsibility. And then we go through in verse 2, we see where he says, shepherd the flock. He introduces this uh, this common analogy of the shepherd and the flock. We see this, uh, probably one of the most famous psalms in all the Bible, Psalm 23 Uh, where David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. and just goes through this great illustration of how God takes care of us, like a shepherd cares for his flock. And we see in John 10 that Jesus calls himself the good shepherd and goes through and describes all the way that he fulfills that role in our life as the good shepherd. And so shepherding is really, and he says, Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight. And so he gives shepherding, which is the figurative way of describing what the elders were to do, and then he says, uh, "Exercising oversight or overseeing as a literal representation of what they're supposed to do, providing that clarification." And then he gets he says, uh, "Shepherd the flock," and some of your translations may have "tend the flock" there. And this is the same word that he, that Jesus uses in John twenty one when he's talking to Peter. So, this is this idea of shepherd the flock or tending the flock is very important to Peter. If you go, if you look back at John chapter 21. This is after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. Um, Peter and the others have gone back to fishing, and Jesus comes out to them and uh, you know, did you catch anything? No. He said, Well, throw it out again. And uh, they recognize, they says, Because it's you, we'll do it. And so they brought, you know, a large load of fish in. And then they get to the shore, and Jesus is there cooking breakfast. With fish we're not really sure where Jesus got his fish, um, but he said, "Bring some of the ones that you have." And so after this, this great scene of Jesus appearing to them uh, after his resurrection, he restores Peter. Remember, Peter denied him three times uh, during his trial. And in verse uh, 15, it says, "When they had finished breaking bread uh, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, "Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these?" And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. So this is the command that Jesus has given Peter and that Peter is giving the other elders uh, in the churches. Now this, this shepherd metaphor uh, really points to the pastoral aspects of eldership, of church leadership, that the leaders are supposed to feed the flock, to gather the fo- flock, to protect the flock, and to lead them. And it's important to see also that he says... Uh, he says to those allotted to your charge. The shepherds don't own the sheep. They're God's sheep. As as elders of a local church, the elders don't own the flock. They're entrusted to the elders. And so there's a responsibility there. It's God's flock, not ours. And this flock metaphor is not the only one to be used to the church. There's a lot of other metaphors that are used to the church. Um, we see, it's, uh, I think in Peter also, it says that the church is the pillar in support of truth. The church is called a holy priesthood, the temple of God, the household of God, the body of Christ, a holy nation. There's other metaphors. So we can't, some elders would take this uh, view of a f- shepherd flock metaphor as an excuse to abuse the congregation, to get from the congregation what they want and what they need. And you can't do that. This is just one metaphor that shows one, one aspect or several aspects of how the church relates to its leaders. But there's plenty of others that we see that the church is a holy priesthood, which, we, uh, which we've talked about and that we try to practice throughout the life of our church. And then he warns them not, for, not to do this for sordid gain. Now, this is not a prohibition on elders being compensated. Uh, I talked about this back in October when we looked at 1 Corinthians 9, that Paul lays a very good case for why and how ministers should be compensated, even though he had chosen in that particular instance not to be compensated for his work because he didn't want that to be a hindrance. But the general practice was that elders and leaders in the church would be compensated. At least some of them would be. So if you're really curious on that, you can go back and listen to the podcast from October but this is a warning against abusive and coercive practices because it was very common even today for church leaders to take advantage of those in the church and to extract from them whether it's money or other things that are not the way that God would want us to lead the church. And it points to Jesus, or it says that the elders are, have to prove to be examples to the flock. Now, here's the difference between shepherds and those who take care of other animals. If you, I grew up out in the country. I didn't have a farm, but I knew lots of people who did. If you want to move a herd of cattle from one place to another, you get behind them, or you get around them, and you make noise, and you push them along, you drive the cattle to where you want them to go. Sheep are not like that. Sheep grow to know the shepherd's voice. And so the shepherd leads the way and then calls the sheep, And they follow him because they like, this is the shepherd, he takes care of us. If he's going that way, that's the way we should go too. So there's a fundamental difference in the way that shepherds lead their flocks than how others would do it. And so that's the example for us as elders in a church is that we have to lead God's way. We have to have God's motives, we have to have his attitudes, and we have to use his methods when we lead the church. It's not something we can just make up and do the way that we would want to because in our flesh... You know, anytime we have a, you know, a person has an ability to exert some power or influence over somebody, there's a chance for it to be abusive, or to go beyond what it should. And so as elders of a church, the elders of a church have to be careful about this, because it says Jesus is the chief shepherd. All of us, anyone who serves in leadership in the church is under the chief shepherd of Jesus. That's why we say Jesus is our one hope. He is our pastor. He is our chief shepherd. He is our perfect example. And he goes through their motivation that they should do this voluntarily. Uh, it should Serving in the church in any capacity, but certainly in the role of an elder, should be voluntary. It should be from a God-given motivation. It should not be like drafted soldiers, but like volunteers. You know, A drafted soldier, it, it, it's been so long since the draft has been implemented here in our country that we may forget what that is. When you turn 18, guys, I don't girls don't have to do it, do you? Okay, when guys turn 18, we have to go to the post office or something like that and sign a form, give our information that in the event that our country goes to war and they need us, they can compel us to go into service with a few exceptions. 100% of our military now is voluntary. That means they volunteered to do this. It's not I think it's been since Vietnam that we had the draft. So it's been beyond most of our lifetimes that, that that's been the case. But church leadership should be voluntary. It should be a God-given motivation, not drafted. Uh, I've joked sometimes that maybe we should draft a president because most of the people who want to be it probably aren't the best ones to do it. But uh, uh, So it, it's, it can be like, you know, if you want to be president, you probably shouldn't be. But um, that's beside the point. But the... But the political gain or authority, power, control over people cannot be the motivation for ministry leadership. And some people may have gotten into it with that not being the motivation, but it becomes the motivation because you know, power, you know, as I say, power corrupts. The more power you get over other people, it can have an effect on you and can lead you to do things that you normally wouldn't have done. That's why Peter says here that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. This, the word clothe is, is like when somebody puts on an apron to do work in the same way that Jesus put on the apron to wash his disciples' feet. And he says, put on humility. You know, Peter's talked a lot about humility and submission throughout this letter. And here, as he talks to the elders, we, we, we see this concept that those who are being led will emulate their leaders. If they see leaders who are humble, who are serving God the way that God has intended to, that will motivate them to lead, lead their lives that way. But if they see leaders who are abusive and who are proud and who are doing things in their own power, then it will lead the church to do things that way. And so those who have been put in the position of elder or any type of leadership have to be sure to, be do it, to do it out of humility. But we also should see that this command is, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. So it's not just for leaders, it's for all of us to have humble hearts. And he points that those who lead well as, as elders, uh, there will be a, a reward for that for those who do this respons- who hold this responsibility well. And then in verse 5 he gives a gives a little bit of command to younger men. And so you're like, oh, here it comes, you know, we've talked about, you know, wives and husbands and and all this other stuff now for the young guys. So when we're young, especially guys, we want change and we want it now. You know, there's not for most guys, there's not the impatience. And this happens with, with women as well, but Peter's talking to guys here, so I'll do that. There's an impatience for change. And many times the change that they want to come about is good change. But we have to do it in the way that God would lead us to. We have, there has to be patience. And submission is good training for leadership. If you've always been the one in charge in every situation you've been in, You might not be a great leader because you've never learned how to submit to another leader. We see this with David and Saul. David was anointed the king over Israel, but Saul was still king. David submitted himself to Saul for years, even when Saul was out to kill him. And David had the opportunity to take Saul out. You know, and all of his men thought, why do you not do this? He says, because he's God's anointed. And he submitted to Saul. Saul. And even when Saul ended up dying, someone showed up making a claim that they had been the one that killed Saul and David killed them. It's like you can't reach your hand out against God's anointed. Now, kings and church elders are different, so don't think that I'm saying you can never say anything wrong about a church elder, but there's a process for that and you should probably, it'd be good if you, if you go for that. But submission is great training for leadership. You know, there's... there's there's our idea, and uh, I think it's the Marine Corps where everyone's trained to be a leader because you never know when you're going to have to step up and be the leader, and that's the way our lives. If we train to be leaders, but we submit until that right opportunity uh, comes up, and then he quotes from uh, Proverbs three uh, thirty-four, which is also quoted in James four six, when he says, "God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Pride will not allow us. To recognize our need for God. Our need for forgiveness. Which goes into what he talks about next. So let's read starting at verse 6. He says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be, so, be of sober spirit Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he gives us, therefore, of why we should humble ourselves, why we should be humble before God. The truth is that if we don't humble ourselves, God will humble us. And it's a much better situation to humble ourselves than to have God humble us, to have God's hand uh, bring us to submission. And he makes the connection to anxiety. After he says this, uh, you know, that we're to humble ourselves... And he says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And you're like, well, what is the connection between pride and anxiety? Well, the truth is that anxiety comes from pride. Pride says, I can take care of this. I got it. I don't need help. I certainly don't need a savior. Humility says, I can't. You know, and ask for help. Goes to God. God. But we're, we're pretty proud people. That is just the way that we work. We usually go to God when we've tried everything else, and then we go, okay, I can't do it. I've tried. Now, God, can you help me out here? Can you bail me out? When that's the exact opposite of the way God wants us to interact with him. He wants, to come to, wants us to come to him first to recognize that we can't do it on our own. This CS Lewis has this quote in, in Mere Christianity. He says according to Christian teachers and he's referring to folks like Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin and Luther. He says the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Because pride says, what I want is the right thing. Pride says, I know better than you. And what we may not admit, it says, I know better than God. That's what pride tells us. And that's why it leads to all these other sins in our life. And then he says we're to be, sober, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Now, he's not talking exclusively about alcohol here. He's, act, he's actually talking about all the things in our life that, we, that can hide our judgment, that can cloud our judgment. And it could be anxiety. It could be things that we choose to distract ourselves with. Um, you, know, you ever heard the, the saying, I, I don't need alcohol, I'm drunk on life? Well, you know, and usually that's kind of a good thing. You know, it's like, hey, life is just so awesome, I don't need anything else. But there's the other side of being drunk on life to where the things that we deal with every day in our life cloud our judgment and that we don't see things for how they really are. And he gives this warning because of the devil. And we don't talk about the devil too much. Um, And maybe we should. Because the devil is real and active. The, The scenario or the words that are used to describe him kind of give the picture of a courtroom. Uh, Is a court adversary or the accuser. Now the good thing is we have Jesus as our advocate. But here's the picture. Is that through sin, God's justice was against us. That means that because we had sinned and God cannot allow uh, sin, His justice, which is a core part of who God is, couldn't let that stand. So through sin... God's justice was against us, but Jesus. Jesus fulfilled justice's demands to where justice was not compromised, but it was fulfilled in Jesus so we can return to that right relationship with him. But he gives this warning because of Satan, because of the devil. Now, there's a lot of misconceptions about uh, the devil uh, that come from literature and popular culture. A lot of us, you know, Halloween we might have... Little, little horns and little tail on a pitchfork or something like that, um, you know. Or there's all you know. The, the the old cartoons where you'd have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, um, you know. So we have all these things in popular culture, you know, in great works of literature that point, to, you know, that you know we probably know more about or people think more about the devil out of what they've learned from Dante's Inferno than they have from uh, the Bible. So we have to see Satan for what he really is and what we see in Scripture. The, you know, Satan means adversary. Uh, the devil means false accuser or slanderer. He's there to speak against us. He was an angelic being who sought for himself honor and worship that was only due God. In other words, pride. He wanted to be God. And he was cast out of God's presence. We, we see this in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. But during this time Satan still has certain responsibility or certain authorities in this world. 2 Corinthians 4 says that he is the god of this age, and Ephesians 2 it calls him the prince of the power of the air. So the devil was not powerless. He has certain powers during this time. And he's accomplishing certain things, but we see in 1 John 3 it says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus has, is destroying and has destroyed these works. And Satan's end is certain. We see in Revelation 19 that he will be cast into the lake of fire. It's, we already know what's going to happen. It's in God's Word. And so his defeat has already happened even though we don't we still live in this time where he has some power. Because the truth is Satan would be perfectly happy for you not to for you to think that he doesn't exist. Because then he could just influence your life and have an effect on you and you wouldn't really uh think about it. And and some look at scripture and say that, you know, the talk of the devil is is allegorical or symbolic. And they even say that about hell too, that, that hell is an allegory or, or something like that. But if you take that road, it leads to a lot of other false interpretations and beliefs. Because if you believe that the devil is just some figment of our imagination or some allegory, and you believe that hell is just an allegory or something that is not real, you eventually get to where, well, maybe Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Maybe he was just a good guy. And and maybe heaven is just a concept. It's not a reality. You see where that takes us. It takes us to a very dangerous place. And so when Scripture talks about the devil from Genesis through parts of the Old Testament and then certainly in the New Testament, we have to take that seriously. Now, like I said, there's a lot of false beliefs about the devil, but look at Scripture. Look what it teaches clearly. And it gives us a good reason to to be sober, to be alert uh, for his actions in, uh, in this world. And he tells, he encourages the people to resist him Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So we're to resist in faith. And that faith is in God. It's not a faith in ourselves. You know, it's like, I have faith that I can do this. That just, that's just another aspect of pride. If you're going to resist the temptations of the devil, you have to do that in God, not in your own power. And he says, submit therefore to God. Resist James 4 says, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's hard to imagine this. We talked about Job last week in our house fellowships. Testing by Satan is a sign of God's pleasure in you. You know, Satan came to God and said, you know, I've been looking for somebody to to get after. And God says, well, have you thought about Job? He's a righteous guy. And Satan goes after him. Because God was pleased with Job. And so it was another way for God to show his power and for Job to show his faithfulness uh, in God. So when things are not going well for you, now it could be your own fault. I'm not going to say that sin has consequences. So if things are going wrong for you, you want to check and go, all right, did I mess this up somehow? And so be honest with yourself. But when you've done the right things, When you've been faithful and things are still coming against you, consider that it could be Satan testing you, that it could be God has allowed this to come on you, to test your faith, to grow your faith, to bring you closer to him. And he gives this word of encouragement that other believers are fighting the same battle and they're being effective through faith and prayer. Your struggles aren't unique. Now, there may be particular aspects of it, that are unique to you. But the general struggles that we all deal with, the temptation to different types of sin, the, uh, the relationships that we have with other people, they kind of fall in some general categories that we all wrestle with at some points in our life. And he tells, our command is not necessarily to go to battle, but it's to watch and to resist and that God will fight the battle. He never says that we should attack Satan. He says that we should stand firm. And sometimes standing firm is harder than attacking. And so we have to stand firm knowing that God will fight the battle for us. And he says, a little while. He says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, Strengthen and establish you. You may think a little while, you know, some people suffer their entire life. They have different things go through them, whether it's an illness or a family situation or whatever, or just living in a part of the world where there's no opportunities for them and they spend their whole life in poverty. But in comparison to eternity, this is a little while. This is a little while is brief when compared to the glory of heaven. And he says that God will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now this is not justification. When we become a believer, we are immediately justified with Him. We're set in a right standing with Him, with God. But he's talking about our sanctification, which is a more gradual process, which is over over the course of our life from the time that we become a believer and to the time we're in heaven, we're gradually, if, if you're allowing God to work in you, we're gradually becoming more like Jesus. It's a process that uh, theologians call sanctification. Philippians 1.6, which uh, a verse probably a lot of people have memorized, says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's not on us. It's God working in us that will bring about this. So we can trust Him in that. And it says that He will perfect us. God will make the believer perfect, complete. It says that He will confirm us you know, that the believer's salvation is secure and that nothing will overthrow it. It says He will strengthen us, give us the spiritual strength of soul to withstand temptation and suffering. To bear our cross. That's God strengthening us. And he says he will establish us. He will settle our home in the house of God. The foundation of Christ. There will be no more wandering. Never to be removed. As the Bible says, like a house on a rock. So the question is that are we living in the house of God? Or are we only visiting? Or are we only passing through? So then we have this closing remarks here starting at verse 12. It says, Through Silvanus, our brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Now these last few verses here were probably in Peter's handwriting. It was a a common practice that when somebody was doing a letter like this that they would uh, recite it to somebody and then somebody else would transcribe it down. And we see the same thing in Paul's letters. Um, So it's possible that somebody had written this down and then to show it that it's authentic, to show as it goes out to the other churches that it was actually from Peter, he would write part of it in his own hand to show that he approved of, of everything that was there. And he makes a reference to Silvanus, which is probably Silas, who we know was the companion of, of Paul and Timothy. And he may have been the one who transcribed it, but we're pretty sure that he's the one who delivered it to these churches. And it's a short letter compared to some of the other letters that we have in the New Testament. Because the and part of it was the purpose of this letter was to encourage them. It wasn't to to go into a big doctrinal teaching. Uh, certainly, the doctrine is obviously sound here. But he's what he's doing. His primary pur- purpose is to encourage them. And we see because we see the word exhort all throughout this book or through this letter, and then it refers to the true grace of God, and that's pointing to salvation through Christ. That that is the true way of salvation. It's the only true way. And, in, and if in this way, he's showing that his writings, that his views, his beliefs, are in harmony with that of Paul's. Because obviously, they would be seeing Paul's letters as well and be familiar with those teachings. There was there was some thought that maybe there was conflict between what Paul was teaching and what Peter was teaching. And what Peter's showing here is that, no, we're, it's the true grace which you have heard through Jesus. Um, you know, there's, there's no disagreement in that regard. And then he refers to Mark which uh, had worked with Barnabas, uh, then worked with Peter, and more likely is the, gospel, uh, the author of the Gospel of Mark. And when it says his son, it's not talking specifically about him being his biological son, but being his spiritual son. We see that that's a common practice when uh, one person refers to another. It could be that they were the one who introduced them to the gospel and referred to them as his son. And then we get to greet one another with a kiss of love. How many of y'all are looking forward to bringing that one back into the practice of the church? <laughs> so it's, it's it's something that we don't really do, um, and you know we've there have been discussions where we've joked about this to some degree. More likely, this is kind of like the European custom of when you greet somebody, kissing them on the cheeks. It's it's not intended to be in a romantic way or anything like that. But like with a lot of things. It probably started to be abused, and so people restricted it to where only guys could kiss guys and girls can kiss girls, and then it eventually got to where we just don't see it in practice very much in the Christian church. I'm sure there are some places that that still do, but certainly here in America, it's not something that we see a lot. That doesn't mean we can't love each other. You know, it's not whatever is appropriate for our context that we should express our love for one another. Um, I know some people even get weird about hugging and stuff like that, but um, you know that can be abused as well. But What is appropriate for your situation? We should show our love for one another. And then he has this blessing or this benediction at the end. Peace to you, all who are in Christ. And so he says this, all who are in Christ. And so I guess that's the question that i leave you with. You know, are you in Christ? And it's more than, well, yeah, I believe that God exists and Jesus, he was a good guy and all that. You know, James 2 says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So belief in God, belief in the existence of God is not sufficient for salvation. We have to depend on God, on Jesus for our salvation. We say, I have no hope apart from Jesus. It's more than just knowledge. And if we say, yeah, that, uh, you know, that, that's, kinda, that's where I am. Well, is it evident in your life? Because if we, if we say we have these beliefs but they don't affect what we do, we act out of what we really believe, not what we say we believe. And so the question for all of us is that, are we depending on God for this? Are we showing humility? Or is there still pride there? Confession, just like we've said here, pride is the hardest thing that I struggle with. Because if you've grown up and you've been you know, kind of a smart guy and you've been able to work things out and you have people, hey, you're doing a great job and things like that. Pride is hard enough in regular life, but then you start having people feed into that. Wow, it's like, oh, the head just gets really big and you start thinking, oh, I'm a pretty good guy, you know, and you start thinking these things like, I can do stuff, you know, and so we think these things. And in our society where everything is just pumping into the ego, you know, how many likes can I get on this picture on Facebook? Or can I come up with a witty thing that I can put on Twitter and 140 characters that, you know, is like really convicting for somebody? And can I get it retweeted 100 times or something like that? You know, all these things just pump into our ego and our pride, our narcissism. That's why it's at the root of all these other things. It's how the devil became the devil. And it can keep us away from God. So I pray that we would have humility. And it starts when we confess our need for a Savior. Because there are those who will say, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't really need to be saved. You know, my good outweighs my bad. Well, in comparison to Jesus, no. Even Paul says, his righteousness is like filthy rags. So as we go into our open time, if you are in Christ... This time is for us to express our love for Him, our commitment to Him. The bread and the cup are here for us to take in remembrance of Him. So if you're in Christ, that's for you. If you're not in Christ, you know, today is the day of salvation. There's, there's no reason to hold up, there's no, uh, there's no special words that have to be said. There's, it's following Jesus, it's saying. I trust you for salvation because I need it. And I can't do it in myself. We have to die to ourselves so we can live in Christ.